right, the foghorn rumbles through the day, rumbles through the night, and this is the Cavish Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk, shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, there are increasing calls for a new approach to naval aviation to enable carrier-based aircraft to strike at greater range with greater lethality. To address these and other issues, analysts Brian Clark and Timothy Walton in a new report for the Hudson Institute propose new thinking on how to achieve those goals. Brian Clark will be here to explain their ideas. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. Last week's unconfirmed reports that the Russian frigate Admiral Makarov had been attacked and set on fire appear to have been false. Several observers report the Makarov has been seen undamaged at the Russian naval base at Sevastopol in Crimea. On May 12th, the Ukrainian government claimed the Ukrainian Navy attacked and damaged the Russian Navy logistics support vessel Vesevolod Bobrov. A new ship completed only last year. The Bobrov or Bobrov appears, however, to have reached Sevastopol in a damaged state. The littoral combat ship Sioux City arrived at Rota, Spain on May 13th, completing the first transatlantic crossing of a littoral combat ship. The Freedom Class Sioux City will operate with the Sixth Fleet and U.S. European Command before moving on to the Persian Gulf in U.S. Central Command. U.S. officials have not said how long the deployment is to last. And in the Pacific, the deployed littoral combat ship Charleston arrived at Sasebo on May 10th for a port visit, the first visit of an independent of an independence-class ship to Japan. The San Diego-based ship has been on an independent Western Pacific deployment since April 2021. Two other independence-class ships, the Jackson and Tulsa, also remain deployed in the Western Pacific. The U.S. cruiser Port Royal made a Taiwan Strait transit on May 10th, cruising the strait between mainland China and Taiwan. It was the second such U.S. Navy transit in three weeks and the fourth this year, keeping up a roughly once-a-month drumbeat going back to 2018. By contrast, the U.S. has scaled back its freedom of navigation or FONOPS passages in the South China Sea near areas that China claims as its territory. The U.S. Navy carried out nine South China Sea FONOPS passages in 2020, four in 2021, and only one this year, and that one back in January. In ship news, the new destroyer Frank E. Peterson Jr., DDG-121, will be commissioned at Charleston, South Carolina on May 14th. The Arleigh Burke-class destroyer will be homeported in Pearl Harbor. And at St. Petersburg, Florida, the Sentinel-class fast response cutter Pablo Valent, WPC-1148, was commissioned on May 11th. The 48th FRC will be homeported at St. Petersburg on Florida's Gulf Coast. And Admiral Linda Fagan was confirmed by the U.S. Senate on May 12th to become the U.S. Coast Guard's 27th Commandant and the first woman to serve in the Coast Guard's top post. Fagan will, uh, will relieve outgoing Commandant Admiral Carl Schultz. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. All right, switching gears to the discussion portion of the show, we are very lucky to be joined by Brian Clark, a senior fellow and director at the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology uh, at the Hudson Institute Think Tank. Uh, Brian, thanks for joining. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. 
So Brian, you and your partner in crime, uh, Tim Walton, uh, put out a report at the end of April um, talking about naval aviation. Um, we've spent a lot of time on this uh, podcast talking about ships and submarines and maintenance. So it's good to kind of expand our horizons and, and talk a little bit about the, the air wing and where naval aviation is going in the future. Your report, Regaining the High Ground Against China, a plan to achieve U.S. naval aviation superiority this decade is the name of the report. And our folks can find it on the Hudson.org website. But can you talk a little bit about the problem that you guys uh, went after, um, and then we'll get into some of the solutions. Yeah. So the the, the Chris main problem, Chris, is uh, you know lack of range in the carrier air wing. It's kind of the fundamental thing we all argue about. Uh, China has a lot a lot of long range uh, precision strike weapons they can use to push back carriers to the point where it's very difficult for them to affect operations or affect events in the South and East China Sea. Um, beyond that, though, the biggest problem is what that does is it means that naval commanders and U.S. commanders in general have fewer options available to them. And so for China, it makes their planning very easy. Right. All you have to to do is push back the carrier. You know that you're only going to get a small number of aircraft out to a range where they're going to be able to make a difference in the fight. You can make sure that you're able to deal with that kind of offensive uh, firepower from the U.S. Navy. And then you can move on to other things that you want to be able to address in your planning. So the lack of options that the range uh, discrepancy creates for the U.S. Uh, is really the biggest problem. And when you go into these war games, that's what plays out is the U.S. plan is almost, you know, scripted already because you know there's a few ways that you can fight the force. And then the Chinese side, the red side, is able to build a, a plan and, and be able to execute against that. What options are available to us um, should we decide that we want to regain that high ground, right? I mean, you said right now we have a lack of options. W what can we do to, to, to adjust that balance, if you will? Yeah, so the what we found the kind of the first thing is we wanted to make sure we focused on this decade, right? So everybody keeps talking about uh, either the Davidson window, but uh, just in general, it's pretty clear that Indo-PACOM believes that within this decade, China will be in a position to invade Taiwan. So we got to come up with a solution that's going to make a difference between now and 2030, uh, which cuts off a lot of things that you know new technologies and new platforms might afford you. So we really focused on what can you do with uh, the systems, the airplanes, uh, the ships, that are either around today or are already in development are going to show up in the next few years. Um, so you got to start with the carrier, right? So the carrier um, air wing is limited by the range of the strike fighters on it, the F-18 uh, Super Hornets, the F-35 uh, Lightnings. They've got a range of you know five or 600 miles in general. Um, that's not enough when the carrier has to operate probably from 1,000 to 1,500 nautical miles away from the fight. There's a huge difference there. Um, the Navy's building this MQ-25 unmanned refueling tanker, which will you know, allow each tanker will allow a couple of strike fighters to get to 1,000 miles. And if they launch a standoff weapon like the joint, uh, you know, the anti-strike or anti-ship missile or the long-range anti-ship missile, that'll get you 1,500 nautical miles. So that's enough to get you to where you need to be. Um, the problem is um, to get your 44 strike fighters in your carrier air wing out to that 1,000 nautical miles means you need you know, like 15 of these unmanned refueling tankers. Um, so we said, okay, you've got to dramatically increase the number of unmanned refueling tankers you're going to put in the air wing. That means you need to push other airplanes off of the aircraft carrier because there's got to be space for them. Uh, and we saw from the most recent uh, deployment by the Vinson, they only got about 67 airplanes on the on the flight deck and the, and the hangar. So if you have 44 strike fighters and like 12 or 15 tankers, not enough space for all the 
EA-18G Growler electromagnetic warfare aircraft, all the E-2 Delta Hawkeye airborne early warning aircraft, you got to reduce those numbers. Um, so putting those aircraft somewhere else actually was really a good thing. It turned out that that gave us a chance to leverage you know, some of the new technologies the Navy has fielded, so unmanned systems in particular. Um, so if you take the E-2 Delta, the Hawkeye, um, you know, it's it's got short range, it's too vulnerable to send up forward anyway. It's got to hang around the carrier. Well, if it's going to hang around the carrier, it could do that by operating out of Guam. It could operate out of the somewhere in the second island chain. It could operate even out of Japan and fly over, meet up with the carrier and stay over the top of the carrier to help provide air defense. It doesn't need to all be on the carrier, which means you can shift some of those ashore. You can also shift some of that mission to unmanned aircraft. So MQ-4 Charlie Triton UAV uh, that operates out of Guam today, it can support airborne early warning you know, using passive sensors. Uh, MQ-9 uh, Reapers that the Marines are already building, they can operate out of the Philippines and do airborne early warning using their passive sensors. Uh, and you can also use some of these new low Earth orbit space uh, systems that the Space Development Agency is fielding. So there's other ways to do airborne early warning at a long range. So if the carrier is 1,500 nautical miles away, that's a lot of airspace you got to monitor. The U-2 Delta could never do it anyway. So you need to rely on these uh, unmanned systems to help fill in the gaps. Um, so that's one mission that you can shift off of the carrier. Um, you can shift electronic warfare off the aircraft carrier by um, using the Growler mostly as a defensive platform for air defense, stays close to the carrier, and then you send some of those guys off the carrier to operate from shore, and then you shift a lot of that offensive electromagnetic warfare mission to unmanned aircraft. You know, so Air Force is fielding this new, um, you know, tritable UAVs in the Skyborg program. They can carry jammers. That's perfectly you know, reasonable to expect to get that done in the next decade. They can launch using rocket assist off of uh, amphibious ships. That can be a way to do the offensive uh, electronic attack mission that the Growler would do, but the Growler doesn't have the legs and doesn't and is too vulnerable to send up forward in support of a strike package. Um, so that gets the Growlers off the aircraft carrier. Um, and then anti-submarine warfare is the last big mission to address, and that's uh, an area where the Navy has particular shortfalls because it doesn't have the capacity to deal with the scale of the threat you're going to face against the Chinese. So to deal with that, you know, we need to get a lot more ASW platforms out there to do the search mission. Um, so we should shift that almost entirely to unmanned systems. The Navy's already doing that. It's fielding a bunch of unmanned uh, unmanned undersea vehicles, unmanned sensors that sit on the seafloor. Uh, and then the MQ-9s that the Marines are building or buying could do anti-submarine warfare as well. So you can shift that mission off the helicopters that would do it from the carrier. Instead, you're going to do it from shore or using these unmanned systems that are at sea. So there's ways to get a, get the stuff off the carrier, rebalance the force. And so what this does essentially is it rebalances the Navy and Marine Corps' mission set between the two services and rebalances some of these missions from sea to shore. Um, and what the end, of, end result is now your carrier air wing's got a lot more reach and a lot more options for commanders. And then because you're operating these other platforms from other ships, it creates a lot more options for the overall fleet commander and makes it a lot harder for the Chinese to plan against. So, Brian, I, I'm curious. Uh, did you ever look at a specialized air wing? In, in other words, more, more of a task group, two carriers, but one carrier would have a specialized wing, however you want to do it. I mean, there, there obviously are options here, but you, you're kind of going back to the 50s and 60s when there were ASW wings. Uh, and it's just a different way to use the carriers. Now we have obviously different versions of a light carrier concept uh, involving LHD, LHA, big assault ships. 
Uh, there are things like the MQ-9 that's being developed with folding wings that would be uh, carrier capable. Um, I mean, you, I'm, 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 I'm sure you looked at all that. What have you? Right. What did you come up with? Great point, Chris. So uh, first of all, the specialized carrier idea is really, I guess, it, that's what we're driving towards. You know, so one of the big realizations we had is we got to move away from the carrier being the jack of all trades, mm-hmm. um, and instead focus on it maybe delivering particular types of missions. So. We, we gravitated towards the strike fighter kind of mission just because that ends up being the best place for the strike fighters to operate from, whether they're Navy or Air Force. All right. So if you're looking at a strike fighter, it's got a certain set of limitations in terms of range and payload. If you put it ashore, well, that means there's a limited number of places ashore where it can get close enough where it can be able to actually be beneficial in a fight against China. So you might as well, you really need to put them on a mobile you know, airfield, ideally, to be able to get that, you know, get them close enough to do what they need to do, but then also be survivable enough that they're likely to return home and be able to do it again. Um, so that's why we gravitated towards the the specialized mission for the carrier ends up being that strike fighter mission of strike and, and ASUW. Um, and then it does air defense to the extent it needs to to protect itself. Um, but I agree, I think, um, Thinking about specialization is what we need to do, but the reason I didn't look at an ASW carrier, for example, is um, the unmanned systems that can operate you know, pr- for pretty long endurance at sea and these safe uh, shore-based systems like the MQ-9 can do the job better than any of the sea-based systems can. Um, and they can do it obviously without the vulnerability of the ship, right? So if you're the ship looking for a submarine, you're putting yourself already in harm's way because you're you're looking for the thing that's gonna be able to hunt you. So you, you, you unless you can search for submarines at like a thousand miles to get outside their cruise missile range, you're really not able to search for submarines at, at acceptable risk from a ship. What's the long pole in the tent here? Um, so, I mean, what you've described would require some investment and some work, but it all of the, as you said, I mean, all of the parts are there. It would seem to me, I, I'll answer my own question first and then you <laughs> give yeah. it to you. It would seem to me culture, right? I mean, I'm, I'm imagining a bunch of naval aviators sucking through their teeth going, oh, I don't know that I want to do that. And oh, I don't know that, I mean, we've got the air wing the, the way we want it. Do you get a sense that Navy leadership is receptive to this type of change? Um, I mean, they almost have to be if they want the carrier to stay uh, valuable. Right. Um, but I wonder what feedback you've gotten. Yeah, so we've actually met with the Navy several times as part of doing the studies. So we had a series of workshops. Uh, we met with 98 a couple of times to talk about it. And then we've also talked about the final results with them. So I would say they're receptive to the ideas in here. And I think the Navy is already moving in some of these directions. So you've already seen how they've uh, changed the number of MQ-25s they're planning to have on a carrier from like four now to five to nine. I think the number is just going to continue to increase. And then they got to figure out what to do with the other airplanes. And I think there's a resistance to taking E2 Deltas and E18G Growlers off the ship, off the carrier, because it does reduce its multi-mission capability. Um, And I think what you might see is the idea that, um, which gets to what Chris was saying earlier, is maybe the carrier deploys on a normal deployment with its normal kind of multi-mission air wing. And then it would transition to having an air wing if if it looks like there's going to be a fight that's much more focused on the strike fighter mission. So it's basically strike fighters, tankers, and then a small number of E2s and and growlers to be able to support the air defense mission. Um, I think that's maybe the way they're going. So they seemed receptive to the ideas. I think they, they were reticent to you know, buy into it a whole hog because I think they want to retain this ability for the you know naval aviation portfolio to be able to kind of be the jack of all trades that it has been for the last 30 years. Can you talk a little bit about some of the unmanned 
ideas that you've got in here. You're you're talking about a tritable UAVs. So the tritable is Pentagon speak for things that are expendable or yeah, it can get shot down. Um, right. Right. Yeah. Uh, good. Good question. So the um, so that we're I guess there's like three classes of UAVs that we're really talking about in the study. So the first, the big ones, uh, the MQ4, um, which the Navy has, it, the Navy is somewhat. Yeah, like they seem lukewarm on it. And from my perspective, um, they're not fully, fully embracing what it could do. Uh, it's treated more as an intelligence asset than it is an operational asset. So we're saying you should bring the MQ-4 into the operational world and really leverage it as part of your operating fleet and use it primarily for this ISRT mission, clearly, uh, but also for this uh, airborne early warning mission that the E-2 would do, but the E-2 can't, right? I can't send the E-2 over the South China Sea. I'm going to have to use something else to look at that airspace. Um, and the MQ-9, which the Marines are buying, is, a, you know, I think, a, a great platform for the anti-submarine warfare mission. Um, and then it could also support, obviously, some of this airborne early warning. And then you've got these, um, I would say, medium you know, UAVs like the MQ-25, which you know, we're saying use it as a tanker, but you know, clearly it's going to have maybe other missions it could do down the road. Uh, but talking with the Navy, talking with Boeing, um, it's probably not realistic to think you could get a lot of different mission functionality on the MQ-25 by 2030. So I think that's realistically something that might happen after 2030. Um, and then I'd say they're in the smaller UAV category, you've got these attritable UAVs like the um, XQ-58 or RQ-58 Valkyrie, which the Air Force is developing as part of Skyborg. Um, you've got the UTAP-22 um, Mako, which um, the Air Force is also developing in Skyborg. And then there's also a smaller General Atomics one that Air Force is developing. But um, Marine Corps has done some experiments with those. You can launch them from shore. You can launch them from a ship because they're rocket assist propelled. Um, and they can carry packages like the existing you know, miniature air launch decoy uh, electro and vector warfare system um, that's already fielded, right? So you can take that mission package, stick it inside this UAV, and it could go do a jamming mission or a decoy mission um, instead of the growler doing that. And then in the small UAVs, you got the air-launched effects. So we're gonna we were talking we're talking about leveraging the Army and Marine Corps uh, air-launched effects program, which are small UAVs like little you know almost hand handheld size thrown uh, UAVs that are launched by other airplanes. So the Army's going to do this by launching UAVs from uh, helicopters. Uh, the Marine Corps would do it by launching them from their MQ-9s, but they can go off and do this jamming mission, or this electronic warfare mission as well. So we saw the the you know, UAVs as being a way to uh, help get the missions off the carrier that need to be, you know, done from something else like electronic warfare and, and airborne early warning. Um, and then also doing this ASW mission. So it seems like it's a way to get the scale that you need and the options you need uh, and free up the carrier to focus on the most important thing it can do, which is strike fighter delivery. So I, I, I'm sort of interested that uh, you're, you're dismissing the MQ-25 as getting any other capability other than refueling anytime soon and it's got a it's got a, a weapons bay right um as you know the development of that aircraft has been couched in endless euphemisms <laughs> um for 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 quite some time and euphemisms in the sense of what's it for what can it do and there's an awful lot of uh politics cultural adapt adaptation cultural fear uh, within the aviation community about about the encroachment of unmanned and getting you know pilots should be in cockpits and cockpits and airplanes should have cockpits um, and there's a lot of people just don't want to hear it any other way so you know at, at first even the tanker mission was viewed as a cover 
stories. Right. Like, what what is it really? Right. And, and MQ twenty five means multi mission. It's not right. an R. It's not an R. Um, it's not a refueling aircraft specifically. It's a multi mission aircraft. Uh, you look at a lot of things that are happening right now with the war in uh, with Russia's war in Ukraine, and an awful lot of systems are being thrown into service in ways that they were not necessarily intended for. And they're being very effectively used. People are adapting, learning, and, and employing these things really fast. Does it really take that long? If, if this aircraft gets in service and, it, and it's on flight decks in three or four years, and in many ways, there's a lot of reasons why they shouldn't be able to do that. Um, you don't think that in another three or four years, they could adapt this into a strike package and that becomes an, an attractable, if you will, right. Um, strike aircraft that you're not risking uh, a pilot for. Oh yeah, and so in the report we talk, we have the you know line of our investment you know recommendations at the end talk about putting money into the MQ25, um, and we also talk in the strike discussion about the fact that you would want to transition some of the longest range or most dangerous uh, strike missions over to the MQ-25 because you're right, it's got a weapons bay. That weapons bay is not affected by the refueling mission. Um, it could do weapons delivery and ISR missions with what I perceive as not being very much modification. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I did, we want, didn't want to base our ConOps and the success of the concept on whether MQ-25 is able to manifest these new capabilities. So we wanted to make sure we had a plan that worked even if MQ-25 was still just a refueling aircraft. And then if it can do other missions, that's gravy. You know, basically we saw that as being a way to uh, even further extend the reach of the carrier and do missions that, um, you know, are high risk, you know, that otherwise you wouldn't perform. But yeah, I agree with you, Chris. I think that should be doable by 2030. But when we talk to industry uh, and the Navy, we got a lot of pushback on it. So, you know, I, so I said, okay, well, we'll build a plan that works even if that doesn't happen, but we're going to advocate for it to happen uh, no matter what. Brian, before we let you go, I'm looking towards the end of your study and you talk a little bit about some of the investments that Navy would need to make. Can you talk about um, the recapitalization or what, um, what investments Naval Aviation would need to make in order for this plan to come to life? Yeah. So, um, so you think about uh, on the when it comes to the manned aircraft, we uh, looked at the strike fighter shortfall the Navy is undergoing today, the spare parts uh, shortfall that it's got when it comes to the current inventory of F-18s and F-35s. So we said we need to put more money there. So we continue to buy F-18s for a couple more years. Uh, we put some more money into the spare parts APN lines um, and then uh, add money in there for modifications to continue to advance both those aircraft. So uh, F-18EF needs to get better capability in the infrared part of the spectrum. That really is where the fight's going. Um, so uh, radar, radar jamming is going to be less and less important. It's going to be much more important how you're able to find the other enemy in the spectrum, in the IR spectrum and hide. Um, and then when it comes to the unmanned aircraft, uh, we said you got to add in more MQ MQ9s for the Marine Corps. They're already planning on buying 18. I think we doubled that amount. Um, and then advocate that you know they they buy the MQ9 Bravo, which is a little bit more expensive version. So we built in that cost uh, associated with that. Um, we uh, added in the cost of the you know Valkyrie uh, and the UTAP uh, attributable UAVs. Uh, because those are relatively expensive. We built that in. Um, we also put in stratospheric balloons, which we think are uh, a useful way to augment the ISR picture. Those are pretty cheap, though. It doesn't actually change the investment profile too much. Um, and then we um, 
uh, we paid for some of that uh, additional procurement by reducing the procurement of F-35 slightly by 10% or so over the, the basically over the fit up. Um, and that, get, that freed up enough money to be able to buy the F-18s and then these UAV uh, augmentations we talked about. And then when it comes to R&D, we, we, we recommended that we uh, increase the investment in the MQ-25 to try to bring on these new capabilities Chris highlighted. Um, we improve the manned aircraft with infrared um, and maybe even ultraviolet sensing capabilities. Um, we uh, advocated for some advanced electromagnetic warfare capabilities for the F-18, which will help it be able to survive in some of the environments where you need it to go to still contribute to the air wing. Um, and uh, it's some decision support tools basically to allow uh, operators to be able to manage the electromagnetic warfare systems or the UAVs that they're working with. So the investments are, are you know, designed to be affordable. So if you look at that profile, what we're proposing in terms of a level of investment stays consistent with where it is today and stays well under what the CPO had for the recapitalization of the uh, the air wing or the naval aviation portfolio. So we, we're spending less than what CPO thinks the Navy's going to have to spend, and we're spending about the same as what the Navy's spending today. Uh, we thought that was important, you know, because even if, you know, the, obviously the Navy could get some more money as a result of congressional action this year, but we didn't want to come in with a plan that required, a, you know, an assumption that there'd be some massive amount of largesse, you know, afforded to the Navy. So that, that's why we chose to put that constraint on ourselves. But I think there's an opportunity here if, you know, Congress wants to pony up some extra money. Um, these are all things that are already in the in the program. So it's just buy more of existing things as opposed to start a program from scratch, which obviously you can't do from the Hill. Well, folks, that's that's uh, pretty much all the time we've got today with Brian. But this is, uh, folks, this is a really interesting report. Brian and uh, Tim Walton cover an awful lot of ground. There's, there's great graphics in this report, great charts. Uh, really, really adds uh, aids greatly in thinking about this problem. Highly recommended. It. It's called Regaining the High Ground Against China, a plan to achieve U.S. naval aviation superiority this decade. It's it's uh, published out by the Hudson Institute. Uh, Brian, do people have to pay for this? Can they just go online and download it? They just download it. It's free. There you go. Well, thank you very much, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Brian. And we hope you'll join us again here soon. You bet. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right. Well, you know what that means. And this week, Mr. Cavus will squawk about the Navy's ability to tell its story in a clear and coherent way. I watched and listened this past week to two Navy posture hearings. Those annual affairs where top service leaders appear before Congress to defend the newly presented annual budget request. I didn't notice too many senators or representatives who seemed that impressed by the Navy's testimony. Many of them asked a question or two or referred to an issue, quite often something representing, of, representing uh, their district, and then they let their allotted time run out. Why? Don't they care? Well, actually, many Congress critters, I'm sorry, I sort of like that all encompassing term, they do care, but they don't have much time to do so. Dozens of issues pass in front of them every week, if not every day. Time is precious for even the best of them. The trick in presenting your issue is to have a concise, easy to understand message that conveys in a short time the essence of an argument or a position. It's a trick every single member of Congress understands. Heck, every single politician understands it, all the way back to the days of ancient Greece. All these people, Republicans, Democrats, moss-covered veterans and newbies, Trumpers and progressives, oft-overlooked moderates, they share one absolute trait. They understand messaging. They can tell when someone has something to say, and just as quickly, they realize when someone has nothing to say or nothing new to say or doesn't even know what they want to say. 
I'm going to read something that the Navy put out a few days ago. It's a photo caption describing sailors on an aircraft carrier practicing rigging a crash barrier. In evolution, sailors aboard every single aircraft carrier that has gone to sea over the past century is all too familiar with. Fairly simple stuff, eh? Well, here's how the Navy captioned that photo. U.S. Navy sailors assigned to the USS Nimitz conduct drills on the flight deck for a multi-phase training evolution designed to give the crew a solid foundation of unit-level operating proficiency and enhance the ship's ability to self-train. What? Whiskey, Tango, Foxtrot, WTF? What the? Well, that, friends, is the sound of an organization that has no idea, no idea how to communicate, not with Congress, not with the public, not to the world, and most certainly not to itself. It's no wonder that one of the primary messages in recent years directed to the Navy from Capitol Hill is, what do you guys do? Why do you do it? What's your point? What do you need to do it? The past week's testimony did not show that top Navy leaders are getting much better at answering those very fundamental questions. To put it into language the Navy might understand, Top representatives continue searching for multi-phase evolutions that could enhance their ability to gain communications proficiency and indicate a capacity for self-training. Yeah, well, we're all still waiting. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. Hey.